we can confirm without a doubt is our equipment is on the surface of the moon and we are transmitting. So congratulations, IM team. We'll see how much more we can get from that. Hello, welcome to the February 2024 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollinger. And I'm Sue Nelson, and we're delighted to be supported by the UK Space Agency. Last time we looked back at the Apollo moon landings with Jerry Griffin and Chris Riley. This time we're looking forward to a return to the moon with Artemis, privately funded space missions and the Lunar Gateway. Everyone's going to suddenly go, oh, oh, this is happening. It's, it's brilliant. We are having an, another space station out there. We'll also be commemorating the demise of ERS-2, the European satellite that's uh, now in pieces at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, these are really, we've got three really good conversations this time. What do you mean this time? We had we two great ones last time. Well, I'm saying we're, up it, we're upping <laughs> no. it. We've got three this time. Uh, no, yeah. no, they're, they're all good. And just um, bef- before we get going, I just wanted to, this occurred to me, and I wish it occurred to me at the time last time with the last podcast, there's the whole, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. That Kevin Bacon can be connected to any other Hollywood actor mm. by six degrees. We are three degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, thanks to Chris Riley. Thanks to Chris Riley. So oh. Chris Riley, Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon. Well, not bad. I know. Not bad at all. Three degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> It's our, it's, our, it's our greatest achievement as a podcast. Thank, thank you, Chris. But Chris, who, as we know, co-write with Tom Hanks, the uh, wonderful Moonwalkers exhibition, that means he's two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees from degrees Kevin Bacon. From Kevin Bacon. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Well, first, I guess we've been meaning to have on the podcast for quite a while. Managing editor of the website Space Up Close, journalist Ken Kramer. He's based on the Space Coast in Florida with so sister Jean Wright. Hi, Jean. Where he covers launches and the business and politics of the space sector. And in our conversation, we'll chat about Artemis, China and, quote, dumb politicians, unquote. But most recently, Ken's been covering the launch and landing of Intuitive Machines' I Am One mission, Odysseus. Three, two... One, ignition, and liftoff. Go SpaceX, go IM-1, and the Odysseus lunar lander. Vehicle pitching down range. Stage 1 propulsion is nominal. Well, that was on the 15th of February. We now know that Odysseus landed on the moon just a few days later on the 22nd albeit not quite in the orientation engineers intended. It was the first US soft landing on the moon since 1972. Well, Ken goes to a lot of launches, but we began by asking him whether this one was special. Absolutely. And I was with students who had an experiment on board from Embry-Riddle University called EagleCam. So it was extremely exciting to be with them and people involved with the mission. Normally, we're just with the uh, media. We met Nicole Stott, whose husband has an experiment on board, and he's English or whatever that is in... Uh... The Isle of Man. Isle of yeah. Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. still English. Oh, almost. <laughs> I'm not sure it is, actually. Oh, no, it's yeah. not. No, Some... no. Isle of Manian. Yeah, so we met him. She showed up all of a sudden, plopped down in between us. I, I had no idea till I turned my head, and there was Nicole Stott. So she's a very nice lady and friend. And I'm just personally excited, too, beyond all of that. Because I watched Apollo as a kid, and I've been waiting 50 years for this to happen. And now, this is the first U.S. lander that succeeded, and only the second that even tried, in 52 years. So it couldn't be more exciting for me personally, and for those kids, and for the people involved in the experiments. Absolutely. It's gung-ho. 
Well, that's great. And uh, you've sort of uh, stolen an edge there on my, my next question, which was going to be, what was your first launch? I mean, yes, you, this wonderful that you've seen this one sitting next to astronaut, former shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott, and people who have actually got experiments on board. But uh, so was your first launch in Apollo 1? No. The first launch I saw oh, with my okay. eyes. No, because I live in, in Long Island where they built the lunar lander, actually. As a kid, you know, we, we were a limited means, so lower middle class, so we just couldn't go down there. I visited the Space Center when my parents were there, but that was all after Apollo was over in the 70s. But the first launch I saw was a very exciting launch, the Galileo mission to Jupiter on the space shuttle. And I watched that basically as a tourist from the beach long before I became media, but while I was still a scientist. So that was real exciting. And that, you know, was a breakthrough mission to Jupiter. And now this year, later this year, we're finally going back to Europa, Jupiter's moon that might have um, uh, signs of uh, a life. Then I became a, a reporter and uh, started going to the last 10 shuttle missions and met the astronauts and met all of the top executives and managers at NASA. So it's been really, uh, really very exciting. And that's how I. I met you, Sue, too, because I was then, by then media. Yes, that's right, with Wally with Funk. Wally didn't Funk, we met who I Wally. didn't even yeah. know about, didn't know about that until um, you asked to interview me. So that was a revelation, <laughs> even though I followed it at the time. That wasn't really a big deal back in the 60s. I know. Who knew a few years later she'd be in space herself? Yeah. So how, you know, since you've been living in Florida, how has the Space Coast changed? Well, at the end of the shuttle was really bad because tens of thousands of people lost their jobs. There was a lot of shuttered buildings, bankrupt businesses. It looked pretty bad. And so when I moved here around uh, five years ago or so, we had just started on the uptick. And a lot of that is due to SpaceX bringing these launches back. ULA also, and now with their Vulcan. But, you know, we were at a very low period here. A lot of businesses went bankrupt because the people didn't have jobs, okay? They didn't have good-paying jobs anymore, so they couldn't go to the restaurants, couldn't buy cars, couldn't go to the supermarkets. You saw a lot of abandoned buildings here. And it was really sad because I saw it at the end of the shuttle program the last couple of years, and everything was humming at that time, you know, very busy. So you go from being really busy launching three or four shuttles a year in addition to the other rockets. SpaceX was just starting, but ULA was still launching Atlases and Deltas. So there was a, still a lot of activity. And then it, the bottom fell out, and it looked like a ghost town, a wasteland. And that was extremely sad, very bad for the people. Unemployment skyrocketed to over 10% here, and it had been like, you know, maybe 3 4 5%, so more than doubled. Then, you know, things started turning around. A lot has to do with uh, SpaceX and uh, them getting those commercial contracts, just like this lunar lander is a commercial lander. So NASA started this program, these commercial programs, about uh, 10 years ago, towards the end of the shuttle, right? They started the commercial programs, commercial crew, and first commercial cargo, right? Because we couldn't launch a mouse into space to the International Space Station. It was terrible totally dependent on the Russians. And, you know, at that time, the Russians were our friend, but now with Ukraine, it's terrible. So anyway, finally, the commercial cargo started taking off with SpaceX and with Northrop Grumman launching their Antares Cygnus out of Wallops. So that was good. And then commercial crew was delayed because of political difficulties. Republicans keep cutting the Democrat programs and Democrats cutting the Republican programs. So it was pretty awful. Commercial crew got delayed quite a few years. Originally, 2016 didn't launch until 2020. So that's why the uptick started slowly. So now, if you, say, just went out to, I don't know, stayed on the Space Coast for a couple of weeks, what are your chances of of seeing a launch? Yeah, so now it's completely changed. You might have been lucky to see a launch every two months, okay? Sometimes once a month, but often every two months. Now, you could see one or two or even three launches in a week. We averaged here more than one launch per week last year. 
there were, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but about 70 launches here because SpaceX launched over 90 rockets last year. So SpaceX is primarily responsible for that. And they do that because it's reusable rockets, so they don't have to build them new all the time. Saves a lot of time, saves a lot of money. So from going from, you know, once a month to once or more per week is the total change. And this year, 2024, it'll be even more. They're expecting to do over 100 launches here. So that's like almost an average of two a week. And they're always shifting the schedule. So even if you book your ticket and they change the launch, you have a chance to see another one that you didn't even plan on. Because the schedule is constantly shifting. So, yeah, you can see these launches. You can see them from the beach. You can see them from Titusville. You can see them from the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. So you have an excellent chance of seeing a launch if you stay here a week. Maybe not the one you planned, but, you know, most people haven't seen launches. So it doesn't really matter which launch you see. Because a Falcon 9 looks the same whether there's a human on board or a ComSat doesn't look any That's different. True. And you're doing a great job for the um, Florida Tourist Board as yes. well, Ken. I think it's it's making. I think Richard and I both think we we you know we really need to uh, to go back there and, and see another. Oh, you need to come here. Another. But I was just thinking, it's probably just as well that we've got these SpaceX launches because um, you've obviously got to offset that excitement. You've got the sustained. Or, or should I say the suspended excitement of Artemis because of the delays? Most people seem to have expected that. But how was that received on your side of the Atlantic? Well, you know, the public is disappointed, but the media, I fully expected a delay. I didn't expect a delay to September. I thought it would be two or three months, maybe into March, April. And September 2025, we're talking about now. rather We're than talking about... 2025, right, where they were targeting Artemis II for November, December, the end of this year, right, because we just switched years. I have to think about the years myself, right? (laughs) So, yes, 2025, September, they might not even meet that uh, because the problem is, the problem has been what it's been all along is Orion. The rocket is basically ready. It could launch the end of this year. But the Orion has a few issues, mostly with the heat shield. There was excessive charring when it returned on Artemis 1. It's not fully explained. And so, you know, you would have thought they would have had the root cause by now, but they don't absolutely have it nailed down. We had a briefing a few weeks ago. They said they're close to the root cause. And, you know, that's surprising because the launch was more than a year ago. And we knew about this basically right when it returned. I mean, they looked at the capsule and they saw this immediately uh, last uh, December, right? I think it returned in December of uh, 2022, right? Launched in... Yeah, I've lost track of time as well. But yeah, yeah it's, it's at least a year yeah. ago. It's at least a year so, ago now. Yeah. So when it got back here, you know, a few weeks later for analysis, and they've been working on this heat shield to figure out the issue since then. There's some other issues too, but that, but that's the main one. Does it frustrate you, given that, I mean, managed to send Apollo to the moon, managed to send astronauts to the moon, managed to bring them back, all back alive, uh, and that worked, that heat shield worked. It, it must be, the, the sense, I mean, you know, you're there, but from this side of the Atlantic, it feels there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of we've got to do this now. Whereas in the 60s, there was. We've got to do it by the by end, of the, end of the decade. And that is true. That is true. And it, for me, it's personally frustrating, you know, because we're all getting older and we want to see this happen. I've been waiting 50 years for this return to the moon. OK, we never should have stopped, first of all, but that's another story. So, yeah, every three or four months we were launching an Apollo. All right. And it was full speed ahead. But the difference was there was a lot bigger budget back then. Now, the dumb politicians is all I can say. They keep cutting the budget. It is the House Republicans, plainly, who are the issue. They have forced to cut. President Biden supports NASA fully. And he proposed the $27 billion budget, but they forced him into $25 billion. So now 
you got where are you going to cut two billion? Well, it's going to come from everywhere, including Artemis. So they don't have the people, the time, and the funds to do the testing with an army that they should have. And this is the reason why Starliner is delayed too. They don't have enough people. I've been saying it for years on this project. And the reason they don't have enough people is because there's not a big enough budget, right? Uh, SpaceX manages to do things cheaply. So they're delayed too, but at least, you know, they're moving along. So yeah, it's it's really frustrating. And um, there needs to be a sense of urgency. And another reason there needs to be is because China is hot on our heels. They are not pulling back. They have three landers already on the moon, and they're going to have more. They've gone to the far side, which we have never done. So, you know, you have these people in D.C. who have no sense of urgency. They don't seem to care about science, really. Uh, They keep denying science. And they think, well, we can do $27 billion's worth of exploration for $25 billion. It's not possible. Things have gotten delayed. JPL just had 8% layoff. The mission to Jupiter, Dragonfly, delayed by a year. Artemis is delayed also. You know, they don't have the money to do things. So it's a lot of politics involved, unfortunately. How much does this depend on who wins the next presidential election? in terms of the continued return to the moon? Well, yeah, I know under President Biden, we will move full speed ahead. If Trump wins, well, he moved up the program. That was one good thing he did was Artemis. The trouble was he didn't fund it. And now the Republicans are in this budget cutting mode. They want to cut 10%. Actually, they want to cut 30% from the federal budget. Okay. That was their proposal. So Biden settled at 10%. And that's across the board, everything. So I know that if if they actually go through with those 30% budget cuts, Artemis will definitely be delayed. It could even be canceled. All right. So who wins the next election is going to have a big impact on the future of space, the future of science, because it's not just NASA that's being cut. It's cancer research that's being cut too. All right. Medical research, energy research, everything will be cut Everything will be delayed. And guess what? Are the Chinese cutting anything? No, they're not cutting anything. They're moving full speed ahead everywhere. All right. They got their own issues. But as far as space and science goes, they are investing heavily. They they could land before us. Let me just say this. They could land people on the moon before us if, if these severe budget cuts go through. So do you see China then as the main competitors now and that Russia is out of the picture completely? Absolutely. China's the main competitor. They have a space station. Russia doesn't have a space station. They're working with us, right, on the ISS. But when the ISS ends, they they have nothing. They might work with the Chinese, but they don't have their own. They don't have the money for that, especially because of everything they have to spend on Ukraine. So China is absolutely the main competitor. You know, they're the second biggest economy in the world. And they're investing heavily in uh, in, in space and science and military. They've got missions to Mars. Also, you know, they had a rover and they're planning outer planet missions. They have their space station, as I said, and they're going to probably double the size of it from three to six modules. So they're moving ahead. So If the politicians in the U.S. cut the budget, we will definitely be behind. And there's really no good reason for it. And when that happens, more people will get laid off and they'll say, oh, who lost the moon? Well, the politicians will have lost the moon. Would the American public stand for that? I mean, it sounds a bit like going back to the origins of, of, the, of, the, of the original space race and this talk in the 1950s of a, a missile gap with the Soviet Union, the race when, you know, you had Sputnik first, Yuri Gagarin first, Valentina Tereshkova first, all these Soviet first really gave America that impetus to get to the moon. We need one because, yeah, you know, at least half the public supports returning to the moon, but there's a significant proportion that don't. Just the same happened in Apollo. There's a lot of support, but there was a lot of opposition too. And so, you know, ultimately they cut the budget. And, you know, because the Soviet Union collapsed. Now, I'm not telling the Chinese to stop. What I'm saying is, uh, you know, pay attention to what the Chinese are doing because they're not going to stop. So I'm glad they're out there 
doing it. But I also think <laughs> I don't want them to beat us by any way, shape, or form. We have to beat them, but we're only going to beat them if we continue to invest and take the situation realistically. I mean, look, Russia, there's now this new intelligence report that they are developing a nuclear weapon in space. So in that sense, the Russians are still a threat. And so we we have to invest across the board to make sure our technology is number one and that we make the breakthroughs. So yeah, space race is an important part of it. And, uh, you know, really, ideally, we would all work together. Like the ISS is just beautiful. It should win a Nobel Prize for international cooperation. You've heard this before. You know, when the astronauts look at space and when you get the satellites, do you see any borders? No, you don't see anything. You just see one humanity. So that's kind of like, you know, what I believe in, too. We should be peaceful. We should be working together. Look at how much we can accomplish for so little. And everybody benefits from space and science. The wonderfully enthusiastic Ken Kramer, managing editor of Space Up Close. We discovered that Odysseus was on its side after that interview. So I emailed him and said, yeah, are you still as, uh, you know, go, go, go. Gung-ho was yeah, the phrase. Gung-ho about yeah. this. And he said, yes, I'm still thrilled that IM1 worked and was saved by the experimental NASA tech demo navigation system. Tipped on the side and functioning is way better than destroyed. It paves the way for future commercial landers. And there was even an exclamation mark about that. And fingers crossed, Eagle Cam will still get to be turned on before it all powers down. So we will be holding off, crossing off fingers for that at the time we're recording this. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I think in an election year in the US, there's not going to be less politics. There's not going to be, (laughs) you know, NASA is going to be embroiled in all this, at least until... November, so we'll see what happens happens yeah. after that. Fingers crossed. But I do, yeah, I I agree with Ken about this lack of sense of urgency on this. I mean, I you know, fine if China gets there first, great. But you know, it just seems crazy that there's a couple more billion, <laughs> and it would you know, it would be a lot faster. Also, I think it's I especially when you're not from the states. I think it's always whenever like we've gone to a NASA site for for work it still takes me aback how much it gives to the economy for the number of people that work there in different parts of the US so if you lose that industry in any way that's a massive hit to the economy as well and that surely for any president must be a consideration I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but there is actually a report. Uh, they're putting out regular reports on this because there was a lot of talk around Apollo. Well, we're putting all this in. What are we getting back? And they only did the maths afterwards to show, well, actually, the boost to the US economy was enormous. Mm-hmm. They're now doing that every year. They're doing an Artemis report of how much the benefit is to the US economy of Artemis. And absolutely, you put a, a billion in, you get a considerable amount more back to the US economy, but I can't remember what the number is off the top of my head. Well, but you... it's definitely the maths is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, that makes that. sense. Oh, can I just mention something else okay. on intuitive machines? Okay. I didn't know this. I should have known this. Why? The um, You know the mission control room, the circular mission control room mm-hmm. for intuitive machines? It's based on... Thunderbirds. No, it's based Stingray. on the bridge, bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, no, I didn't know that either. No. Oh, my goodness. Where, yeah. where have I been not so the reading design, that? If you get a design a control room, I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? If you're a private company, you don't have to go with the old-fashioned stepped, you know, NASA, you know, all look at the big screens thing. Uh, oh, you, that, know, you can decide how you want your control well, that's room. very good. That reminds me, thank you for my, one of my Christmas presents, Rich, which was that, was it Duplo? Uh, no, um, pl- uh, Playmobil. Playmobil Star Trek characters. Yeah. Maybe I should have them all in a little circle and uh, emulate and have a little a little lander on its side up on, a, on, yeah, on the mood. do that. Going, hello. Do that. That Hello. could be our first Instagram post when we discover what the password is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, if you've any thoughts on what Ken says, do get in touch via, I can't call it X. I still think of it as Twitter. Well, it is Twitter, isn't it? I mean, it? this yeah. X sounds like 
Yeah. A bit seedy. Yeah. Um, well, or, it sort of is. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oh, Freudian slip. Yeah. Or Facebook. Uh, the latter seems to work better with us. We'll sort out Instagram at some point. I know we've been saying that for 11 years now, haven't we? Yeah, well, we? start with well, that. It's more than 11. Start How long the... have we been going? 13 years. 13 years. years. Start with Playmobil. <laughs> start with Playmobil. Okay. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Well, Sue mentioned earlier that the UK Space Agency is once again supporting the podcast, which is great. And that'll enable us to get out and about a bit more over the coming months. In fact, you are out and about Yeah, I'm doing a a very, very glamorous trip. You know, I was thinking... Maybe Tenerife, go and see a telescope. Yeah, I, no. I don't think you no. know the in, budget in, goes. Yes, you know, no. in my proposal to the space agency, no, I'm, get, I'm getting the train. I didn't mention Tenerife. I'm getting, I'm getting the train to Farnborough. Yeah, to go to Spacecom Expo, which I'm so looking forward to because the last time I was there, I got into a fascinating conversation. I thought with you were about it. to say a fight. No, <laughs> that would be more believable, wouldn't it? Um, I got into a fascinating conversation with an engineer who was also a Trump supporter. So that was just great to have a chance to chat through to him about the politics. I, I won't mention how it went, but so it, was, pass, it was a fight. It, it was. Yeah. And, uh, and I had a great time. Um, it's, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good day. I think I like these more than you do. Oh, I hate the conferences. Yeah. Uh, well, it's I don't. See, it's not really a conference. Well, no, it's, it's a sort of. You this just one's go around slightly different. To people yeah, going, this one's slightly because this is your space. It's it's yeah, not the sort yeah. of air show. It's yeah, nice not, to not see people. Fan. So if yeah. you see me come and you recognise me, come up and say hi. Um, I will have a microphone with me. I'll be doing a few little space boffins interviews. So um, yeah, I'm hoping uh, we'll pick up some good material there as well. Our next guest on Space Boffins is the UK Space Agency's Head of Space Exploration, the lovely Libby Jackson. She's just returned from a NASA workshop in Washington in the United States, which working through the details of the Artemis 2 and 3 missions to the moon. And we wanted to talk to her about the privately funded all-British Axiom mission and gateway. Uh, before that, though, we began with her reaction to the landing of Odysseus. It is on the moon there is data coming back from the science instruments. It was unfortunate that the landing didn't use the sensors that were first planned, but an amazing result by the team to do that last minute software patch to get from the planned laser rangefinders to the tech demonstrator ones. And such a proof of why it's important to have dissimilar redundancy on spacecraft. Things go wrong. You never know when they're going to go wrong. And having the ability to problem solve to make the most of what you've got on board a spacecraft is what makes space so exciting. The engineers who were involved so brilliant. And intuitive machines got down to the surface in spite of that. It's toppled over, I understand, but we've got science experiments. They are sending back data. It's fantastic to see instruments functional on the surface of the moon. I like that phrase, dissimilar redundancy. So is that a kind of common phrase? I'd never come across that before. Is that a common phrase within the, within the space sector? If you're building a spacecraft, that's at the, what the top of your list. If you're building a spacecraft, if you're building an architecture, if you are trying to bring things together, you want two things that do the same thing, but in different ways, different approaches to the problem, so that if one goes wrong, you've got the other to fall back on it. You see it on the International Space Station, and it's why the US want to see two different providers being able to take the crew to and from the International Space Station. We've got SpaceX with the Dragon spacecraft. We're really looking forward to seeing Boeing and their Starliner come online in the next few months. I think we'll see the first test flight. So that if something grounds one of those systems you're not stuck and you're able to fly crew on the other i was last week at uh, the moon to mars architecture workshop with nasa uh, looking at how we are going to make sure that the artemis missions are set up so that they're telling us what we need and we're finding out what we need to know in those moon missions to get up to mars and when you look at that architecture dissimilar redundancy is there in the same place making sure that we've got two different providers of the same thing is so so important in space well what this also showed is is the importance of as you say redundancies the the craft was actually although it's supposed to land at a rather sedentary two miles an hour was actually three times more than that six miles an hour which may well have contributed to why it toppled over but i'm assuming that perhaps people will look at the design because it was a lot 
taller with a higher centre of gravity than than previous landers. At the workshop you were at in Washington, was there any were there any concerns about the readiness of lunar landers from like you know Blue Origin or Starship? NASA showed us. Um all the steps that they're taking to make sure that these missions are ready. They're checking off the milestones as they go for Starship, for SpaceX's human landing system. There are milestones that have to be uh, shown. They have to have uh, two launches and show a propulsion transfer in space. The lunar system will have to do a complete test landing, uncrewed, showing that it's safe before we put humans on it. And they're working through those. Uh, I don't think NASA is uh, shying away from the fact that the delays that they've made to Artemis 2 for safety reasons to make sure that the heat shield and some other pieces of equipment are safe and good and ready before we put crew um, in that spacecraft have meant a delay to Artemis 3, which you think is helping the preparation for those human landing systems. These things are complicated. They've not been done for a long, long time. There's lots to learn. So people are taking their time and making sure that they get it right. So that delay is helping, but everything is is progressing. Everyone's happy with the progress that's being made. And I mean, let's talk about just briefly Starship itself. I mean, we've had two tests. The big headlines were for those tests, they both blew up, but they blew up at different points. And everyone's saying, well, that's a success. It's doing really well. But I mean, the clock is ticking here, isn't it? I mean, I appreciate it's an artificial deadline. But if that's successful, Starship will be, it's a complete game changer. The amount you could actually land on the moon is extraordinary with that. I mean, it's it's an enormous spacecraft. It is huge. And um, there are companies out there when we're looking at what will replace the International Space Station. We're seeing different companies working with NASA, working with international partners to get ready. And one of them has a concept for a whole space station to launch in a single Starship launch which is huge and enormous. <laughs> and yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big change from, from the era from that Lego we've been used to. By Lego with, brick, effectively, yes. <laughs> yeah, of piecing the space station together in orbit. But back to that redundancy question and making sure things go wrong, it's a lot of eggs to put in a single basket if you're going to put a single space station on a single launch. So I think seeing different approaches will always be very important for the space industry will always be very important as we move to this post-ISS landscape, as we move to getting humans back to the surface of the moon. These things are challenging. There will be problems and challenges to overcome, but all of these companies are working hard on it. From the ISS now to an orbiting space station that will orbit the moon rather than the Earth with Gateway, Where does that all fit in at the moment, and particularly with regards to the UK and the UK Space Agency? The Lunar Gateway is coming. This is the the next space station, which hardware is is, is well on its way to being built. We're going to see the launches in the next few years. And this is an orbital outpost that's going to orbit the moon and will be visited on occasion, will not be continuously crewed, but we'll see visits by... NASA astronauts and by European Space Agency astronauts as a staging post, a stepping stone down to that lunar surface. The International Space Station has, over the last 25 years, really allowed space agencies to learn what it takes to keep humans alive in space continuously. We've learned how to live and work there, but we're still inside the confines of the Earth's magnetic field, which is protecting us. The Lunar Gateway is going to be a base for us to learn how to live and work outside that magnetic field, out in deep space. It will be a staging post down to the moon. It may be a staging post on the way to missions to Mars. So it's coming. The European Space Agency is really playing a part in this, and so is the UK. People think perhaps of Artemis as just a, a NASA thing, another Apollo, but it's not. It really is an international endeavour. The Orion spacecraft that is going to take astronauts to the Lunar Gateway and to the moon has an integral part, the European service module that's been built by European Space Agency countries. And the Lunar Gateway has got modules which European Space Agency is building. The UK has a part in that we are providing the refueling uh, module. It's called Esprit, and it will be the part of the module that's going to allow the, the gateway to stay in the right place to reposition itself to transfer propellant 
from a cargo ship that brings it to it to the lunar landing systems that will be able to be refueled and go down to the surface of the moon and back up again. So it's a really key part that the UK is playing. And I think Gateway's going to surprise us all. I think suddenly we're going to see it and we're going to see astronauts out there and we're going to see missions for 30, 60 days. There's new mission control centres being prepared here in Europe. And everyone's going to suddenly go, oh, oh, this is happening. It's, it's brilliant. We are having an, another space station out there. No, I mean, it, it is potentially all very cool. We've got missions to the moon, a space station around the moon, privately operated space stations around the Earth, potentially launched at once. And then you come on to, I mean, this I guess find this, you know, having covered this for a, an awful long time, well, both of us having covered this for a long time, 10, well, 15 years ago, let's say, you know, the UK barely did astronauts, just starting to think about doing astronauts, certainly didn't do rockets. And now talking about, launching a dedicated mission, a privately funded mission, Axiom mission. I mean, we've had several of these. We know Axiom can do this in a Dragon spacecraft. And this would be a wholly UK mission. I mean, it was announced sort of about October, November, but you actually are moving forward with this now. Yeah, so back in October, the UK Space Agency and Axiom Space entered into a memorandum of understanding to explore a concept for a fully commercially sponsored mission. The concept is that the mission would have commercial sponsorship right through, right in those early phases where everyone's talking to the crew and finding out what's happening, through to the mission, and then a post-flight tour. And all of that would be supported by commercial companies who would be seeing their return on investment. And we've been exploring it with them. It's not a mission yet. There's still a lot to be done. But the conversations with sponsors are ongoing. And the UK has just announced a caveated funding call seeking proposals from the research community, from the industrial community for experiments and technology demonstrators uh, that could be carried out on such a mission. Because if it goes ahead, we really, really are very clear that this has to have a very strong scientific grounding an opportunity to fly the best technology demonstrators the mission would not just be about sending astronauts into space it would be a rounded fully fledged mission that delivers on the UK space agency's goals and objectives well I was going to ask what those goals and objectives are because obviously science can be done by putting scientific instruments on other missions what are the objectives of making this a UK mission? Is it to say, woohoo, folks, look at us, we're here, we're out, we're proud, and we're part of this baby, a bit sort of Mike Myers, or... uh, (laughs) That shows your age. It is, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I lost you there, you've broken up. But Uh actually, I know what the... I I think the question was, was is this going to be the next Austin Powers movie? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah, it's basically yes, it's this, you know, yeah, Britain baby basically. The UK has uh always been, I think, a commercially focused and commercially led country when it comes to space. In fact, we didn't choose to participate in the International Space Station in the earliest days because the business cases were there and and the decisions got made that there wasn't significant economic opportunities there that made it worthwhile coming in. This concept as it stands, if it can be done, opens the doors to new funding avenues, bringing in new budgets uh, to support the low Earth orbit economy uh, space as it stands. It would be a paradigm shift in how missions can be funded. And that's, for me, the interesting area and experiment that we are looking at to see if it can be done. We're very clear that this is something that is going to take some work. There's no certain outcome yet, but if anybody can do this, we think that the UK is the right place where it can be done. And that's why Axiom Space has has come to the UK Space Agency and why we've agreed to look at this together, because of that commercial history and interest. When will you know? I mean, when will we know that this is going to go ahead? Because, I mean, you know, obviously you're... As you, everything you said, it's about it's got to be a commercial opportunity. It's got to make sense commercially. It's got to make sense financially. It's got to make sense to the the taxpayer. But I guess there is an element of us. Where it would be cool, wouldn't it? It would be great to have. You sound like a child, all, don't you? Like, I want to know now. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I want it now. Want and now you're here, Libby. You should tell us. <laughs> no, I guess, tell us I now. I would just like to have an all. I think it's yeah, yeah. just great, and I, I think there now. is. 
and I, I mean, I unapologetic, and I think that it, it's important to have that aspirational nature of it. It may not be funded by the taxpayer, but having an all British mission is is great because you look at the benefits of the Tim Peake mission to the to the space station. You know, there's that aspirational nature of this. It's got to count for something, hasn't it? Yeah, the mission absolutely is very inspirational. It would really shine a spotlight on the space sector. It is all of these different parts that meant that the UK Space Agency took the decision to explore this mission concept with Axiom. That's ongoing. We've published uh, this call, which shows our support and which will allow us to to find those scientific experiments and technology demonstrators that will really underpin the mission. And we will we will know when we will know when uh, we've managed to secure all the sponsors. <laughs> a shame. So we didn't get a yeah, baby, no, it's going ahead. Yeah, well, what a shame. No. What I mean, you, just uh, just finally, in terms of the, the next few years, I mean, it is disappointing, obviously, that Artemis, is, Artemis 2 is delayed, but understandable reasons. I mean, it really is shaping up to be pretty exciting isn't it from the certainly the these projects we've talked about the nasa led the the esa involved the uk space agency involved projects i grew up as someone who was inspired by the apollo missions and i was born after they finished and i got excited by astronauts and helen sharman's flight and grew up in an era where the uk had decided that it wasn't going to do anything to do with human spaceflight for many good reasons And we're sitting here having this conversation. And what I do know is that we're going to see astronauts return to the moon. And I do know that the UK is playing its part in the Artemis missions today. We may expand that role. Maybe all that we could do. I can't tell you the the future decisions that will get made. And I do know that we will see more UK astronauts fly into space in some way, shape or form. We have Rosemary Coogan in the European Space Agency Astronaut Corps. We have John McFall, who was selected as the world's first astronaut with a disability. And we're working really hard to make that feasibility study translate into something that isn't just a one-off that shows that people with disabilities belong in space as much as everybody else. And I know that as the UK is doing all of that, we will continue to make sure that science and technology are at the heart of everything we do and that they're there for important reasons that show just what a great country this is. Uh, We are a science and technology superpower. I know these things are happening. All of that means this is the most exciting time and we're all a part of it. I can't tell you exactly what the future is going to look like and exactly when all these missions are going to land on the moon, but they are coming and it's just fantastic that we're able to have this conversation and that UK is playing a part in all of this. Libby Jackson, Head of Space Exploration for the UK Space Agency. A lot of S's there. I'm getting a bit... Yeah, I do love her enthusiasm. <laughs> it's it's great. And enthusiasm for Gateway. Yes. As yeah. well, which is gets easily forgotten. It, that's what well, I quite, yeah. quite like about that. But once that. that's up, I just keep thinking of it as a sort of tent, a camping ground, a sort of temporary... It's this more temporary camper van, not a camper tent. Van. Yeah, maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe an orbiting camper van in space where people can pop in stay there a bit but you wouldn't want to live there permanently <laughs> but you can just pop in go there spend a few days there and then and then yeah, i mean it does make sense having a staging post i mean this is part of the mm. long-term exploration of the moon where we can actually stay there and it makes sense to have a space mm. station in orbit which that you can refuel the as a staging I mean, if post although maybe you'd have the i'm view. not sure it would i think the, the iss is still the view the view yeah but you would also have the view of the lunar surface but there would obviously certain parts you would see the, the earth see as the well earth in rise. the distance yeah. <gasps> now that yeah. that would be special well i mean that's the whole thing isn't it with frank borman when we had yes, him on the, yeah. the podcast just before christmas is you know go to the moon to discover the earth yeah that 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 would be incredible incredible well the other big space news this month has been the dramatic end of ESA's ERS-2 mission the second European remote sensing satellite was launched in 1995 operated until 2011 and finally fell to earth well a remote bit of the ocean on the 21st of February I spoke to Dr. Ralph Cordy from Airbus, one of the companies under a previous guise that was involved in the spacecraft. They built the radar instruments on both ERSs. Ralph is head of business development for Earth Observation, and I asked him to first describe what the ERS satellites were designed for. The ERS satellites were 
missions which were really pioneering the use of remote sensing techniques were looking at different aspects of the Earth environment. I mean, particularly the oceans, ice at sea, but also things that uh, are going on on the land, agriculture, forestry, etc. And what was it, its original planned lifespan? It's hard to pin that down exactly, but uh, typically at that time we would have been thinking about five to seven years, something like that, uh, for a satellite of, of that class. <laughs> well, that's obviously um, gone above and beyond <laughs> five to seven years. Did, mm. did I know people put in redundancies for, for these missions, but did anybody expect it to go on for this long? It actually lasted from 1995 to uh, 2011. That was well beyond its design lifetime. It was still giving data at the end of that. But uh, really, by that stage, it was decided that actually the best thing to do with that mission was to put it into a, a, an orbit where we could actually get it eventually out of space. Essentially, we considered that the mission had fulfilled its purpose and it was now time to uh, look to the future and get it out of uh, space. And, and what sort of factors go into deciding to bring a, a satellite down from orbit? Well, first of all, has it actually fulfilled its purpose? You know, if you've done your mission, if you've actually, in the case of a scientific satellite, have you actually done the science you want to do? Have you made the effective observations you want to make? And are, is it all working well? You know, if it's all working fine and you've got confidence in its systems, then OK, we keep on going. But if you've got reason to believe that perhaps within the next year or two, there's likely to be a problem. And in the case of ERS-2, we knew that its sister satellite, ERS-1, that had actually failed um, some time before. So I think it was very sensible at that point to consider the future and to start making plans to put it into an orbit whereby eventually it would be dragged down by the Earth's atmosphere and removed. Now, is it only the larger satellites that won't completely burn up in the Earth's atmosphere? ERS-2 is often cited as being the length of a bus. So that's, you know, that's a pretty big one, really, when you consider some of the smaller satellites that are up there. Or are there other factors? Well, it's an issue for satellites of all sizes. There are, in space today, a handful of thousand satellites of which, sadly, the majority are no longer functioning. So satellites of any and all sizes are an issue in space. And the other bits which are on a smaller scale, you know, fragments, fragments of launchers, bits of paint, all sorts of things, those are issues in orbit. And we would really prefer that they were not there because they represent hazards to future active uses of, of space. So you have to make this sort of call, or, or not necessarily you personally, but the call has to be made over the damage that it could potentially cause as a piece of space debris as its orbit perhaps gets lower and lower and lower, and potentially whether it will burn up in the atmosphere completely or not when it returns to Earth. Now, ESA did issue a sort of risk warning saying there was a small risk of it not totally burning up in the atmosphere and possibly being over populated areas but they said that risk was very low and yet you know we had the, the press saying uncontrolled out of control and it, it there was almost a little bit of a deep impact sort of feeling of some of those headlines D did you think that was sort of fair or not? Well, I think there's a, there's a use of language there when we talk about uncontrolled. It sounds rather dramatic. Uncontrolled in these circumstances just mean that this satellite is going to burn up at a time of effectively its choosing, you know, when it's actually dragged far enough into the atmosphere. And ERS-2 probably mainly burnt up about 80 kilometres up in the, in the atmosphere. It is possible that some bits of it might have survived. And these days we examine the makeup of satellites very carefully. We look at all the, the, the materials they're made of, the structures that form them, and do calculations to see what the likelihood is of any bits falling down and getting to the Earth's surface. And if they do, then we have to do a further calculation to see what the probability of any harm to people on the Earth is. And if that comes to one in 10,000 or more, then 
we have to ensure that those satellites are controlled in their re-entry and we actually aim them for the South Pacific to put them in a part of the, the Earth least likely to give any danger to people. As satellites tend to become more numerous and more often than not much smaller, although I know that isn't always as the case, do you think this issue is going to decrease as time goes by because those smaller satellites will almost definitely burn up in the atmosphere? Or do you think this is something that, you know, space agencies around the world are just going to have to manage and maybe the public just have to get more used to it? It's a very hot topic now and it's um, increasing in the, I would say, increasing intolerance of having dead objects, uncontrollable objects up there in space, in these valuable orbits where we want to use the space for examining our weather, our climate, our environment, telecommunications, navigation. You know, there's so many useful things we want to do. So having things which are cluttering up space is not what we want to do. So it's become uh, an accelerating process. Some years ago, the rules were, were, were set and generally agreed across the world that we would ensure that satellites at the end of their life, they would come out of orbit and burn up within 25 years. Now, the tolerance of that has really got less in the very recent past. So now the European Space Agency is putting out its new set of guidance for how to deal with space debris by insisting that at the end of lifetimes, satellites are taken out of orbit within five years. So really not remaining there as a hazard for as long as they have been. Now, back in the 1980s and 1990s, when we were designing and building ERS-1 and ERS-2 uh, and other satellites, there were no such rules. So it's very fortuitous, and I think very timely, that ERS-2 has come out of orbit at this time and burnt up because it reminds us, firstly, it's a celebration of the life of that fantastic satellite, but it also reminds us of the need to get these things out of orbit as quickly as possible. Ralph Cordy from Airbus. I was actually in the main BBC newsroom when they were following the demise of this satellite and everyone was tremendously excited. <laughs> they just stretched on and on and on. They kept saying, it's going it's to crash into the ocean. Well, it's gonna, was journalists I think they basically were, they were, wanting it to crash on yeah. people's heads. I but, hate yeah. to say it, but journalists, news say, journalists well, I was, just want the worst. I was they? watching the track of it and there was a point where it was losing height and going and and over Europe, and I thought, well, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it's a European yeah, exactly. satellite, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it did end up in a remote part of the uh, of the Pacific Ocean. But yeah, I I think journalists, non space journalists, were expecting it to be more than just yeah plop yeah <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it. But you didn't mind? You no, didn't... I didn't mind. I was happy to be caught up in the excitement. Yeah. That was good. Oh. It was it was good fun. Well, that's Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency. And do get in touch. Do sort out Instagram. Promise. Okay. Uh, so you can get in touch via Facebook, uh, X, uh, Twitter. In- Instagram. Can you get in touch via Instagram? Yes, you can, yeah, can't apparently. you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> We're on email. <laughs> Podcast at spaceboffins.com. Send us a letter with a stamp. Yes, that's right. How many weeks that will take. Yeah, yeah. Yes, look up the Boffin Media website. That has the address on. So do, yeah. Yeah, send us a letter. That would be lovely. Yeah, podcast. Yeah. What's the email? Podcast at spaceboffins.com. Spaceboffins. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you.